Hi, welcome back. I'm publishing this important and urgent interview with Josie Naughton, the founder and CEO of Choose Love and Nagar Tayar, co-founder of the Global Hoping Fund. Because Josie and Nagar have just recently returned from being on the ground in Turkey and Syria, witnessing the ongoing humanitarian crisis and desperate human needs of hundreds of thousands of people whose lives have been devastated, homes destroyed and families torn apart by February's earthquakes. Now, this may have fallen from our crisis news network feeds, but as you'll hear from Nagar and uh, Josie, the human need for help is still very real and the rebuilding of towns, schools, homes and lives will take years. Please listen to this and do whatever you can to help. However small your donation or gift, it will go directly to those suffering on the ground. I put links in the show notes to those fundraisers and Choose Love store where you can select to purchase real items such as food and clothing bundles to life-changing interventions that will be delivered directly to those who need it the most. Some background information. Choose Love is a UK charity and Choose Love Inc., a US 501c3 charitable non-profit organisation, which does whatever it takes to directly provide refugees and displaced people with everything from tents, life-saving search and rescue boats to food, clothing and legal advice. Josie leads a lean and passionate team that in just under five years has reached one million displaced people and raised tens of millions for nearly 150 organisations providing vital on-the-ground support at every stage along the migration routes from Europe to the Middle East and the US and Mexico border. Some of you may also have heard my interview last year with uh, Nagar, the co-founder of the Global Holding Fund, uh, the international fund supporting the humanitarian long-term needs of forcibly displaced peoples too commonly called refugees by our media. Now, over to Josie and Nagar. Welcome, Nagar. Welcome back to the Impossible oh, Network. Thank you. And, and welcome, first-time guest, Josie Naughton, from the organisation Choose Love. Hi, Mark. Great to have you here. So, we've got some serious stuff to talk about. So, before we jump in, let's just contextualise why you're both here. Nagar, you and I spoke was probably a year ago now about the work you're doing with the Global Hope Being Fund. So it'd be great to get a bit of an update on where you are. And Josie, I mean, your your organization, from what I believe, it started in 2015 with a hashtag to really try and sort of drive people's awareness around the need for the, the encampment that was at Calais in, in northern France that probably a lot of people in the US don't know about. But it was a massive encampment of displaced peoples waiting to try and get across to England. And you moved that from a hashtag to essentially a, a global humanitarian organization where you, I believe, I'm sure the numbers have probably gone up recently, but you've served over 4 million people worldwide, delivering 5 million plus hot meals, 4 million nappies, 650,000 items of clothing, and probably growing. And it's just incredible what you've done. From, <laughs> you've probably got quite a story to tell about that. But but I think the the reason you're both here on on the podcast is just that although everyone was aware and shocked by the devastating impact of the earthquake that hit the the Gaziantep region of Turkey and also the Aleppo region of Syria and the and the, the massive death toll and the destruction that was all over our let's say our news networks our crisis news networks it suddenly dropped off everyone's radar yet the suffering and the desperate needs of these people still exist. So perhaps you could talk about where you are on the ground, what you've seen, what you've witnessed, and what the, the urgent need is, and, and your ask to anyone that's listening to this. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do that. I think Josie and I, we were just reflecting about it. We had just visited the region. We have been to Gaziantep, the Antakya region. A colleague of us crossed into northwest Syria as well. And we were saying mm -hmm. that if you could, if our careers could be reduced to just this earthquake response and nothing else, we would have had a life well spent. And, you know, last year we were talking about Ukraine, right? And our work with Choose Love on the Ukraine response. So when we say that, it's not to be taken lightly. So I just wanted to ground us with the significance of what this response has been like and the thousands of lives that have been saved as a result of people entrusting us with their resources and most importantly, organizations mm. on the ground that are saving and easing millions of lives. And something to add to that, I think with the, with this earthquake, one of the things that 
that that added to the devastation is that so many of those who were affected have already been displaced sometimes up to 20 times for those who are living in, in northwest Syria. Wow. People have been through unimaginable things already and to then have an earthquake strike in the place that they were supposed to be safe or where they had sought sanctuary it just seems so unbelievably cruel and the, and the kind of collective trauma that that this population has and had was was really really devastating to to see and to witness and we, we felt privileged to be able to hold space for people when they were telling us their stories. And as always, especially in working in that region, the, the organizations that we work with, they, they are so inspiring. Their, their dedication to, to humanity and to humanitarian principles is honestly just astounding. And the work that people were, were carrying out, even when they themselves had lost loved ones or lost their homes, was, was truly incredible. Mm-hmm. So could you give um, an, an overview of where the crisis response is at the moment? I mean, obviously, the, in the first instance, it was about trying to save people from the rubble. But now that we're past, I think, probably upwards of, is it over 60,000 deaths now recorded? Yeah, yes. I believe so. And, and it, the number is probably higher. Yeah. Now it ha- presumably has turned to really helping people survive and begin some form of rebuilding of what can be done in in those areas. But could you maybe just give us a sense of where things are on the ground? And I'm sure it's very different between Turkey and obviously what's happening in a live war zone in northern Syria. Of course. So as you said, in that first two weeks, it really was a race for search and rescue and to save as many lives as possible. And I think we really felt the weight of that in making sure that we did everything we could to raise as much as possible so that we could commit that to organizations who needed to buy fuel and equipment to make search and rescue operations work and and get as many people out as possible. And we're now kind of in this recovery stage, rebuilding, resilience stage of the response. But this this is going to be going on for a long time. The devastation was at such a huge scale. So tens of thousands, hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of people are, are displaced from their homes. And they right now need temporary shelter. And that takes many forms. People are in tents. Those tents need to be weatherproofed. People don't have access to clean water. Children aren't in school. People don't have food. They don't, they aren't able to work. They, they don't have their livelihoods. So there is a kind of real humanitarian response, like you would see in a, in a refugee camp traditionally that is taking place, but at such a huge, huge, huge scale. There are other forms of temporary shelters. People are in community centers or in mosques or in shops and organizations are working to identify those people and and get them what they need. Those who survived the earthquake need to be kept alive. And there are a a huge number of people who lost limbs or Mm. suffering from, there's something called crush syndrome, which is when muscles get crushed under the rubble and the body releases something into the bloodstream that causes the kidneys to fail. So there's a huge need for dialysis. There were families separated. There's a need for families to be reunited. And the medical infrastructure on both sides of the border is, is, is at full, full, capacity you know there there just isn't the the doctors there isn't the space in hospitals to treat everybody and as you said there is a, a difference between what the response is in Turkey and the response in northwest Syria and in northwest Syria there's a population of 4.5 million people and there is no state so all of the search and rescue was carried out by our incredible partners the white helmets they are now focusing on fixing roads, fixing bridges, fixing water systems, fixing mills, making areas safe for people to put down tents. Our medical partners, examples are an organization called Independent Doctors Association, hand in hand. They are running hospitals. They are having to provide the ambulances. So it, it is only NGOs who are, are looking after and taking care of all of those who are affected by the earthquake in northwest Syria. And Mark, I would add for those that are listening right now, it's not just any NGOs. It's not the international community. It's the organizations that are run by the people, for the people. It's Syrians that have uh, stood up, diverted their careers and trajectories to really step up and do this kind of work 
Like we were talking, we spent some time with an eye surgeon who had, as you can imagine, spent years to specialize to be an eye surgeon and uh, is now one of the co-founders of the of IDA, the International Doctors Associations. And he is having a fully packed schedule, working five days a week within the Gaziantep region, offering free healthcare for Syrian refugees that do not have access to healthcare provided by the state, even though they have spent years in that region of Turkey. And on the weekends, when everybody else is, you know, unwinding, he jumps in the car, crosses a very complex border into northwest Syria. Um, he operates on Saturday and Sunday. So, I mean, if you imagine wow. what each of these individuals are holding, and I think this time it's been really difficult and many, it was, it was really heartbreaking because shortly after the earthquake hit, partners reached out and we reached out to them. So the dialogue is always uh, ongoing. And wow. many were saying, you know, we are just in this shock state, as Josie was saying, because we have witnessed 12 years of war. The conflict in Syria started 12 years ago and back in March. But this is nothing like what we have seen before. We feel completely overwhelmed and powerless. And so what's the, the reality of the political and the, and the conflict situation on the ground? Has Assad withdrawn? Has he provided any support, given it's still Syrian people? And are, or that have they suspended hostilities for the time being? So the area in northwest Syria with the population of 4.5 million people that we mentioned earlier, that is majority people who have been displaced, who have been fleeing the regime. And it's in fact now the most densely populated area on earth. And I wish that I could say that the shelling didn't didn't happen after the earthquake and that people were given time to to grieve, to rebuild, to get themselves to safety. But unfortunately, almost immediately after the earthquake, shelling at the, at the front line between the regime and the non-regime area happened. And that just shows mm. you something about the, the, the absolute lack of humanity and brutality. Yeah. Exactly. And so that area, you know, there's been numerous articles and reports over the years about the fact that a lot of institutions, they can only send aid to where they're is quote unquote a legitimate government. So the the oh. aid goes into the regime areas, and it never reaches the non-regime areas, even if even if it's said that it will. So so that's one reason why a lot of the support that's earmarked for Syria doesn't actually reach the people who needs it. And then in this instance, when the earthquake happened, Turkey closed the borders between Turkey and Syria, which is something would often happen in in a in a moment of crisis like this. But the UN was incredibly slow to do the do the steps that it needed to take in order to make sure that not just aid but search and rescue equipment got across the border in, into northwest Syria where it was needed and still to this day the kind of level of response that you would expect to see and is mandated after an earthquake has not reached the people and that's in part because Russia sits on the security council of the UN and we're yeah, just seeing yeah. you know civilians everyday people being caught in the middle of of political games and they are the ones that, that suffer the consequences. And, and after an earthquake, that just seems so in, in, incredibly cruel. So when you talk about the organizations that have to work with legitimate governments or, yeah, let's say Oxfam or the Red Cross or the International Rescue Committee, are they the types of organizations that will be providing supplies through Damascus? They can't bypass and, and go through northern Turkey. It's it's really complicated. The UN is is the kind of institution that I'm most talking about in that moment. But but the larger organisations they have complexities about where they receive funding from. I think we we could probably do a whole other podcast talking about that. But the long and the short of it is that we see these big numbers getting committed, and we know from having worked on the ground in Northwest Syria for nearly eight years that, that that support just just doesn't reach the people and there is a whole host of reasons why. And I think, Mark, there is a very important distinction that we need to make in this con. For those that listened to our conversation last year on Ukraine, I was I was quoting this po data point and saying, you know, of all the money, and I think for Ukraine it's been a, a billion and a half that was pledged and the majority of it was actually then committed. There is a difference between pledging and committing. 
but of that one and a half billion dollars, 0.01 or 4% really went to local organizations. And an organization that was after our conversation was assessing three months into the, into the response to Ukraine, who were the actors that were present on the ground from day one. And you could see this bubble uh, and 95% of the bubble were local organizations. 5% were internationals. And then they were looking into three months into the response after millions, if not billions of uh, dollars had been moved because we only know the fact amount from the you from like that's official. There's so much more that's gone inofficially. Uh, who received most of the funding? It was international organizations and multilaterals. And through Choose Love, we invested in about 93 organizations within Ukraine and along the region. And the majority of the organizations would tell us we don't see that money. We hear about it. We read about it. But it's really not really getting to us. And now imagine that multiplied by 100 for the context of Northwest Syria, where it's a highly politicized uh, strip in the world. It's in terms of like size, it's so small, but similar to Gaza, it's highly politicized. And even liberal media that is in favor of people having a choose to live under a democratic rule, right? Even liberal media is calling people in Northwest Syria rebels as opposed to people, right? So one other thing that you see as a continuous stream in our work is as we talked last year, language really matters. How you portray something really uh, either moves the public or it creates hesitation and doubt in the public, right? And we know the public is the what, is the most important uh, supporter because they have the ability to move millions within no time, and it's flexible money that can be invested in all kinds of ways based on needs, and is not tied to the red tape of bureaucracies, right? So I think. Some Something else that I would just like to highlight is that additional layer of complexity and to caution those that are listening that when they re read about rebel-held areas, it's really people who are refused to live under a dictatorship by the Assad regime. Calling them rebels, in our, my, in our view, we are humanitarians, we are apolitical, we are not leaning into any political direction, right? Our, our work is purely humanitarian by nature. But calling people rebels and reducing the amount of funding accordingly, in our view, is just, it's, it's unethical. It, it's, it's horrific. Um, I mean, that, that statistic of the, of the money not reaching the ground of the, of the local organizations, just um, mesmerizing and, and shocking. And where is that money going? If it's not given to the people on the ground that are local, where is it going? Again, I think it's it's very complicated and we could probably do a, yeah. another podcast <laughs> on, on this issue. But, you know, as Nagar said, there is a difference between commitment, pledge and granting. And so sometimes we see these numbers and that's not the true, true number of money that is released. It can go to institutions that are very bureaucratic, very large in size. So sometimes it, it kind of gets eaten up in the process of getting to the ground. It can go through multiple different hands before it finally reaches the organization who's doing the work with losses kind of at each way. So but yeah, there, there's a, a huge list of reasons why that funding isn't getting to the place. There's also something about accountability. I, I've seen kind of big multilateral grants where you know the, the only tick box is, was this funding used for humanitarian benefit. But, you know, that is so vague that that isn't asking how many services happened, how many latrines were built that, you know, we, we, we need accountability to be at that level to really understand that funding is being used in the, in the most, the most efficient and best way possible. I was just saying that I love that Josie is naming accountability and I would add transparency in the, into the mix. And early on when you were asking how we met each other, we really found our ways to each other because we both don't compromise on transparency and accountability for many, many, many reasons. And I think it's really something that is shining through in our work. Uh, we talked about it in the context of Ukraine last year, but it's the same at the, 
all the commitments that have come are accessible. We have a Google sheet that you can access. You can see how much has been contributed by how many supporters. Many of our supporters want to be anonymous, so their identity is not shared. But then what you also see, which I think is going to be the new standard in the sector, is that you see every commitment, meaning you see every organization and the amount that has been committed to them in real life and why we committed that amount, if it's for water and sanitation or child protection or rescue and uh, search and rescue. So I think some of these issues, these systemic issues that we are still seeing now in terms of where is the money going, is it going here or there, we are hoping to address by just elevating the standard and the system and saying that, yes, you can do real-time real support and do it transparently, and at the same time also uh, respect the privacy of the donors. It's not either or. It's mm. possible to do all. What I love about what you're doing is, one, it's much more direct because people can see and they've got visibility, as you say. You've got that sort of visibility of where your your donations are going. I mean, I love the fact that it's, almost, it's like you're bringing e-commerce to, to giving. That you can say, right, I'm going to I give love that. <laughs> a, medical, a medical practice or some medical support, or I'm going to give some nappies or a clothing package or a food package. And that in itself is brilliant. Now, I don't know if that's addressing sort of the underlying issues, but at least it's, it, it's getting directly to the people that need it without delay. Yeah. I have like, I, I got too excited. Sorry for interrupting you, but I was like, yeah. I have something to share with you on that because we have been reflecting on it quite a bit. I mean, if when you think about the White Helmets, we visited that team in Istanbul. We we visited that team at the border. Our colleague crossed into Northwest Syria and met the team. Some of the 3,000 volunteers, some of them are women, 300 of them are women, met them in person. And we then saw their administrative staff and those that are holding the work in Montreal. We actually just got back. Like when we were talking about that, when we see the budget that they have for one year of earthquake response, right? It's $75 million. The average philanthropist or the average individual donor, you know, would just lean back and think, oh my God, my whatever $10 or my 50,000 or what my 1 million is not going to do anything. And this is only for one year. But I think you could have, you could easily run into that thinking. But if you go and you see the work and you realize that, yes, you cannot elevate suffering, right? That's the first thing. We are not in a position to elevate suffering. Suffering is part of human condition. I mean, it's, it's part of life. Yes, we can't solve the bigger issue of Northwest Syria because we have the, some of the most geopolitically important actors involved in that. But we can change someone's life. We can save someone's life. We can elevate the entire well-being of a family, if not a community. And four and a half million people in Northwest Syria can have a, at least a sense of what it looks like to have a, to have the right for self-determination, to live in freedom, to not fear that what you say about this or that is going to le lead you to prison or that you're going to disappear if you say that the quality of the food provided by the government is not okay. Right? It's, I think we shouldn't forget what the people that are in that region are fighting for. It's what we all take for granted. And... We might not be able to solve the world's biggest problems, but I think if the ambition is to solve it, then we will never do anything, right? It's this thing in, in public narratives, you say, it's the same thing about creating a sense of urgency, but not paralysis. Because when we end up in a state of paralysis, where is solidarity, right? Because we overthink it. And I think... And in, in the work that we are seeing, particularly bringing back the example of the white helmets, you see both is possible. You can immediately change someone's life and save someone's life. They saved the lives of thousands of people, including children, because they were able to pull them out of the rubble. That's number one. But the second piece is that they are also shifting systems. They have very sophisticated operations in place that are checking this chemical attack is happening, even though the world's powers are denying that it happened because they are there 
and they have it recorded. They are documenting human rights violations and holding governments accountable. So I think we could easily feel paralyzed, but I think the, the ambition should not be eradicate suffering. The ambition should be elevate human dignity and solidarity and, and own the power that you as a human being have because what you do matters in this moment and it has huge ripple effects. I mean, bringing back Josie's hashtag, I mean, isn't that crazy? A hashtag with help refugees has led to 4 million people now having access to support and more than 200 organizations that have not seen any significant funding being resourced. That's a big deal. The other thing that I wanted to say, just to close, is that what you shared in terms of the bigger organizations, I think is really important. We are not an antagonizing the UN or other organizations. We work very closely with them. Um, in fact, I worked with them in the past, but I think we abide by the principle that form follows function. We are building processes based on what is needed. We are not trying to fit the realities into existing structures. So I think it's a whole different starting point altogether. And I see Josie wants to say something too. <laughs> oh, I, I, no, I actually didn't. I was just nodding on in agreement. <laughs> You, I, you know, what you were saying is just resonating so much. And yeah. There's a, hopefully a, an upcoming guest I've got coming called John Alexander has written a book called Citizens. I don't know if you've read it. No, but I've heard of it. You really do need to get a copy of it and read it because I think it's probably one of the most important books of this, this certainly this decade, if not this go down the century. And he has said, ultimately, the problem we've got in society, and I'll link this to what you're doing, is that we're in the midst of a story called the consumer story. Forget about capitalism, communism. We're, we're controlled by the consumer story. We're consumers. In the past, there was a story called the subject. We were subjects. We were subjects of a monarch. We were subjects of, you know, some fiefdom. And we moved into the consumer economy. And he said, what's happening is it's broken. And it's fall. We're seeing it breaking apart. We need something to. We move to a new story, and his new story he's calling the citizen story. His argument is we're moving towards much more of a a facilitative leadership system under citizen story, where people can create citizen councils themselves to make decisions and recognise where locally, hyper locally, to direct resources to solve problems. And he's given great examples of what's been happening in Taiwan in, in their moving towards a citizen story. What I love about what you're doing is an example of citizens power coming together, particularly what you did and with, with your hashtag campaign. And you've created, um, a, a new structure, a new approach to addressing problems and giving, creating and giving people back dignity and their humanity by a very, and an alternative way to dealing with philanthropy, unlike the old traditional philanthropic organizations. I think, Nagar, we talked about Anand Girdardis and what his, his whole perspective when he wrote that book, Winners Take All, that it is, it's an old world. It's in a sense, it is a, a consumer driven structure for philanthropists where it's the people at the top think they're only ones capable of solving the problems. And it's completely different. I and mean, you're, it feels to me from what I've seen is the flip of that. You're ground based, bottom up, empowered by people for people. And that's what's lovely about it. You know, it is something, it, it's a privilege to do this work and be part mm. of this movement. And we often say that Choose Love is a movement rather than a charity or an organization. And I think that with, you know, it was called the refugee crisis in, in 2015, why, why our organization came into being. And we saw a million people, over a million people, arrive in Europe seeking sanctuary. They had been through unimaginable things. And rather than being met with a welcome by our governments, they were, in fact, turned away. They were, you know, given no support at all. We saw these horrifying images of boats sinking in, in the ocean. We saw families living in forests forced to be burning their own clothes to, to stay warm. And everyday people just said, no, we, we don't stand for this. This is, this is not who we are. And when you say the word citizen, I, it, it ignites in me, you know, the phrase global citizen, global citizen. And I feel like people now 
you know, global citizens doesn't mean traveling around the world. It means that we are connected. Humans are all connected. And in that moment in, in 2015, when, when Choose Love Help Refugees then started, and actually so many of the organizations that we still work with to this day started, it was because people said, right, I, I am going to do something. And I, I may not be able to change everything, but I can donate five pounds or I can go and volunteer in a warehouse or I am a social worker. I am going to go and use my skills and help these unaccompanied children. And there is really beautiful in that and the ecosystems that we, we get to work in of everyday people using their skills, coming together um, to form organizations, to change systems, to advocate, to challenge legal structures it, it's it's a really incredible thing to witness and to come back to the earthquake response and to the white helmets i think they are of all the organizations we work with and it, the, the best example of this you know this is an organization of, of three thousand volunteers with a staff team of 200 who are supporting a population of 4.5 million people and you know, they started in with search and rescue in response to the shellings by the Assad regime in Russia. But prior to just prior to the earthquake, search and rescue was just five percent of their work. They are also, as I said, they're they're building roads, they're doing the garbage removal, they are the fire service. They when someone falls down the stairs, they are who is there. When a cat is stuck to So the the first responders. They they are the first they are. responders and and they are completely self organized. Wow. They are completely bottom up. They even have have elections to elect their leadership. I don't. I can't remember if it's every year or every other year, but it's so incredible the system, and it, it is, I think, the best case study mm-hmm. of of this this new world and what is possible. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that gives us some sort of hope that we are, and that's what John Alexander would argue. We're in a a liminal space, a process of transition from the old story to the new story, and we see we need to see more examples of that. And I think I just wanted to name one um, because I think it's very important. When we started this work together and we, we found help refugees now choose love through a guardian article, believe me. Mm. Uh, and that was kind of like the seed that flourished and has now become a full blown tree. Um, and mm. I had the privilege to serve on choose love's uh, US board and be chairing that board. But what I'm trying to say is that. Josie, through her presence and the team's presence at the border of North, Northwest Syria and through regular visits to that region, which back then was a very conflicted region for many other reasons that we won't get into, I think has been a very, very important steady force of support. So when I went and saw the partners, for me, it was the very first time Josie had done that multiple times before. The trust that had been built between between them and the consistency of the support was just really overwhelming to see how much it matters for actors on the ground to feel that they are being seen, they're being supported, and they're being respected. And their decisions are important and are informing how the money is flowing. And I think for us to name it, because I want other people also to know that, is we, me, myself, with the Global Wellbeing Fund, we were a little reluctant because we were, our thinking was a little colored by the misinformation campaign that was uh, running and going viral in moments where a lot of bombs would be dropped on Northwest Syria. And it was basically, you know, uh, troops trying to basically prevent you from supporting the White Helmets. Classic misinformation and disinformation that happens in situations like that. So I felt it's very important to name it because... Other listeners may have been also the victim, for a better lack of a better word, of that seed of doubt that has been planted based on an Instagram post they have seen or a Twitter tweet. I'm just wanting to name that we we are aware of that and there is a reason why that is happening. And none of what we have seen in our work, and Josie can speak to it better than I do, diligence processes that are very rigorous given the complexity of that region have validated any of the things that are being spread. Josie, I don't know if you wanted to to add to that. Just following on from from that, absolutely, is I think a lot of people 
haven't been aware of how involved Russia was with the Assad regime. And so when when Ukraine happened and the illegal invasion happened, a lot of the tactics that were being used that people have been so appalled by, including the disinformation about what's been happening in Ukraine, these were all tactics that were practiced, if you like, in, in Syria. And so I think now we, we have this moment, for want of a better word, it's kind of an opportunity for people to understand, oh, right, that what was what's happening now, that's actually what happened in, in Syria. And it really was, it was a, a targeted campaign of disinformation by Russia against the White Helmets, against these humanitarian heroes that, 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 that unfortunately stopped support reaching them. And they do, you just have to, have to give that small seed of doubt for people to think, oh, you know, I don't, I don't understand that. That feels too complicated for me. I'm, I'm not going to get involved. And something that's really important to us in our work at Choose Love and Global Wellbeing Fund is, you know, we, we want to be sure that we know what's happening. We want to really fully understand something and we feel that we have a responsibility to do that. And that's why we spend so much time on the ground. That's why we traveled to the region, you know, as soon as we could after the earthquake. And, and when you do go and we, we see with our own eyes, as Nagar said, one of our colleagues crossed over the border, we can see what, what the reality is and, and what the truth is. And I'd really love to empower people who are listening to know that actually you, you can get to the bottom of things and that there, there are new sources that you can follow that really that, that tell the truth. And there are people out there who are, who are doing the, the incredible open source investigation work. And there are institutions and organizations that, that are, that are doing that work and you can work with them and trust them. It'd be good if you could share some of those links with me and I can put them in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be great. Just as a, on a, on a, on a personal level, you, you started this in 2015. Were you working in philanthropy before that? No, I wasn't. <laughs> I was um, working in music management. I was a personal assistant for the manager and creative director of the band Coldplay, who some people listening might have heard of. Oh, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's, um, that's a pivot. It, it is a pivot. I, I, I did anthropology at university and I actually didn't end up finishing, but I, I ended up then working in music and I kind of thought that the, the, the dream that I'd once had of perhaps working in the UN or somewhere was, was over. And then, as I said, this moment in 2015, I, I, mm. and a lot of other people as well couldn't stand by and watch, watch human beings that had just been dealt a different card of hands be treated how they were. And, mm. and actually, interestingly, being a personal assistant gave me a lot of transferable skills. Um, and, and working at Coldplay, I saw a lot about logistics of touring. I learned about press. I learned about media. Um, they do a huge amount of charitable work. So I, I had the privilege of, of getting to see how organizations like Global Citizen and Comet Relief worked. And yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's also testament that philanthropy and humanitarian work it, you don't have to have done that all your life we we all as humans can can help our, our fellow humans and you know ordinary people can do extraordinary things i'm so glad you quit your studies josie <laughs> <laughs> me too university of life <laughs> from what you've seen on the ground of where things are at the moment i mean we're now in early april a few months on what do you think the the timeline is to uh, let's separate up Syria from Turkey. What would you say the timeline is to getting a, a large majority of people back to some semblance of normal life and humanity in these regions? And I'll ask that. I'll ask that first of all, you, you Josie, on on Turkey, and then maybe Nagar, you could talk about Syria. Uh, so. When Nagar and I were in Turkey, we, we drove between different places and on each journey was about three hours. And on two of those journeys, so that's six hours of driving, we just went through town after town, village after village that was totally destroyed. And buildings were either completely flattened or they were so cracked and damaged and people were just living in tents having to look at their homes that they once lived in that they can they can no longer use and it really was that the scale of it is is just unreal it's it's going to take years and years for the for the rebuild to happen if that was very clear from being there I, I it's estimated in the hundreds of billions i believe that what 
what the rebuild is is going to cost. And then, of course, in over the last couple of months, we've been speaking to a lot of organizations who are experts in earthquake response. And they have been telling us, you know, these kind of moments, they they take years to recover from. And in fact, in Nepal, for example, I think it's eight years after the earthquake, they are still finding rural villages where schools haven't been rebuilt. And and none of the children for all of that time in that village have have, had access to formal education. And so I think it's really important for people to remember that although the the news headlines have moved on, the the situation really hasn't and support is still really needed. And I'll I'll pass it to you. I mean, I suppose it is comparable to a war zone in terms of that level of devastation. I mean, the news here last week or a week and a half ago was all about the tornado that hit a town in Kentucky and just flattened it. You go, well, yeah, that's one town. And, you know, that will be probably rebuilt significantly within a year. But you're talking about regions where everything has been destroyed with very little basic infrastructure. And even if you look at, it's funny, I spent a fair bit of time going to to Mexico City. You can still see evidence in Mexico City from the damage of the 1986 earthquake, let alone the one that happened a couple of years ago or four years ago. So yeah, I think it's, uh, although it's out of the the mainstream media and therefore falls out of people's awareness, I suppose that the challenge for yourself is how do you maintain people's awareness and consciousness that this isn't something that it's solved a year on and in guarantee there's going to be a lot of Brits probably heading off to the their holiday destinations in Bodrum in Turkey oblivious to the devastation that's happening a few hundred miles away you said that very well and there are multiple pieces when while I was listening that were coming to my mind um, one key piece is that even on the Turkish side of the border, many people had been impacted by the large earthquake in the 90s. A taxi driver who took us to the airport was telling us how devastated he is because he grew up as a child in a tent. He spent more than a year in a tent after that major earthquake, and now his family is uprooted and had to their house is destroyed, and they are now in a tent. So I think, yes, the situation in northwest Syria is harsh, and uncomparable because there is no government. There is no, uh, there, I would say, I would go as far and say there is only international lip service to really support the people in the region, but it's not translating in, in, into any significant and meaningful action. If, if the global community on the political level would want to address the situation, they would have addressed it by now. And, um, so that adds complexity and that is why backing organizations like the White Helmets or IDA or Hand in Hand for for Aid and Development is really, really important. And I think it could feel very overwhelming. And in fact, we were driving through Antakya, we were in the car, and I mean, it's this apocalyptic thing. You, You feel like you're catapulted into a movie where you see a couch and a teddy bear and the within this like destroyed building and your head goes to oh my God, on that couch, people were sitting. I wonder how many of them are still alive. Or that kitchen somebody was cooking in. Where is that person? So many people have died, um, to Josie's point. So I think, and then there are buildings that are just ghost buildings. You know, they just are standing there, but inside is inhabitable. So they will have to be removed. There is a lot of asbestos that um, freed now that makes the area quite toxic and we don't know the impacts of that quite yet. So it is overwhelming. It's going to take more time than we would want it to. It's probably a decade of work that has to go into it. Uh, But I think given that we have so much insight into the systems that we saw that are being adapted to these new realities and how they are able to carry people now and are continuously growing and evolving, it's not hopeless. If it were hopeless, we wouldn't be talking the way we are talking now. We actually left feeling very energized and knowing that every little piece that we do translates into people's lives improving and people's lives being saved. Uh, Someone who needs chemotherapy, accessing chemotherapy and that affecting the family. So I think it's just not getting caught with that in, in, in that paralysis state, but realizing that 
the little that we can do, the $10, the $50, the 1 million makes a huge difference. And I think to your point, main, the maintenance of this work, I mean, look at Josie's relationships with all these actors, right? It's been seeded seven years ago. It's matured seven years later. It's, it's be evolved into a true partnership. So our work is very different because we are not, it is backed by millions of transactions that are happening in the course of one month, <laughs> but, but it is not transactional in nature. The essence is really true relationships and partnerships and joining forces and complementing each other and working as a team across organizational boundaries, across borders, across ethnicities and genders and race. And I think there is more to be said than just for this context. That's the new way in which I think we as people are going to start working more. At least I wish, um, if that makes sense. So, so building awareness is one thing, but giving is is more important. So we'll direct them to the site. But when they arrive at the site, you have a whole menu of options. What do you recommend that that is the if someone's just got you know, it's difficult times. A lot of people, both in all countries, particularly in the US, would be laid off, might not have a lot of money to spend, but or donate. What would you recommend would be the most urgent need for people on the ground that people could help with if they had to do one thing? What would it be? So we have a earthquake specific fundraiser online. So we'll, we'll give you that link. And honestly, no matter how much people can give, even if they can give a dollar or a pound, mm -hmm. that enables us to buy food and that keeps people alive another day that supports families. And we have a system where we work with all of these different implementing partners and they have huge needs. As I said, there's a need for shelter. There is a need for medical support. There is a need for medical infrastructure to buy equipment. There is a need to buy vehicles for the white helmets so they can not only continue to respond but are also prepared for the for the for the next thing that may may happen we of course hope it doesn't but it's very likely given that given the region that they are situated so we really just encourage people to know that no matter what they are able to give it really really has an impact on people's lives directly on the day-to-day, -day, but it can also have an impact on the long-term. And I think you were kind of also alluding to the to the shop that we have online. And so we have a store, www.choose.love, and people can go on there and they can buy a child a coat. They can buy a family a meal. They can provide accommodation for a month for a family. We have a school bag item, which and it actually that the funding from the school bag will go to support education programs. And 100% of the, the donations, the purchases will go to supporting those those services and that, that distribution on the ground. And we have a bundle actually specifically for the earthquake so people can kind of support a range of services. So we, we, we just really encourage people to, to give whatever they can. What's the situation with, for example, food? Supply chains must have been broken, completely devastated as well. How do you start to rebuild those supply chains? I mean, it's quite a fertile region in, in, in around that sort of northern Syria area. So how, how is that going to be managed? Because at the moment, presumably you're bringing in food to people to feed them and to keep them alive. There must be the need to recreate, help farmers get back on their feet again, um, the basic infrastructure. Is that something that's likely to be addressed in the next year or, or so, Nagar? Yeah, I, I was just I'm thinking, sorry. oh, God, I wish you wouldn't have asked that question. <laughs> it's a huge question. Uh, yeah. jokes, jokes aside, I think it's very important to distinguish between Turkey and Northwest Syria. We were, uh, my, uh, which got debunked very quickly was, oh my God, borders closed. Nothing's going to be possible. And then you realize how little you actually know. It, it is a, it is its own geography. It is bursting and, and flourishing. People are creative people under very harsh conditions always find a way to creatively source things. I think it was very surprising to me to see how much can actually be sourced within Syria. Yes, the cross uh, trade is important and it prevails. One of the border crossings, at least, I think is open now. And uh, I think food, from what I have been hearing, hasn't been a concern. The sourcing of food and the food supply chain at this point, knocking on wood, hasn't been really an issue. 
at times we did see um, what happens is basically when the demand for supplies like tents hijacks, the prices also triple or mm-hmm. quadruple or a tenfold the price that they were. That is a problem in times of crisis, you know, to think about profit. I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily prioritize that given who I am. Uh, no, I don't think there are any issues as far as we know right now, but I would uh, put an asterisk there and say things are evolving as always and it's yet to be seen. But I don't think, Josie, food supplies would be an issue at this moment. It's not like with Ukraine, you know, when we the world was concerned for very good reasons that you know, the source for bread and other grains would is, is, is hampered and is going to affect communities all the way in sub-Sahara Africa. The context is slightly different. Josie? Yeah, yeah I, f- I fully agree. And, you know, it's it's not the av- availability of food. It was the, the resourcing of the organizations to buy the food, the getting the food to where it was needed, the resourcing of the fuel to pay for the vehicles to get the food to where it was needed, to support the individuals who needed to distribute that food. So, and the, and the hiking up of prices, which is just, you know, devastating to hear about that that happens. So but unfortunately, it, it always does happen in, in these situations. Um, and so, it's globally. So right. When the wildfires happened here, uh, and, or in, in the, in California, Airbnb prices went up six times. And you would think that's the time where you actually open your doors and say, you know what, yeah. come and stay. I give you my bed. But, um, that's the other. We, Josie always says it so well. She always says that in our work, we see the best and the worst in humanity sometimes at the same time. Yeah. You know, just what you said, Mark, about it being a very fertile region. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've seen over the years the the Russian and Assad forces literally setting on fire fields of, of crops in, in northwest Syria, which again just shows you kind of what what we're dealing with here. I think we've covered everything we wanted to there. I've got a few other points I want to raise that are not directly okay. related, but we'd love your perspective on it. This has been certainly the most devastating and damaging to people in everyday level losing their losing their homes losing their families losing to a large degree hope as well but this is just part of the ongoing migration or, or resulting in ongoing migration that's been happening since you know let's say 2013 12 13 and we continue to see the impact of climate on people being displaced we continue to see the impact that wars are having, not just in Ukraine, but other parts of the world and conflicts. What's your, your sense, Nigar, at the moment, because of your, you've worked with all these other organizations as well. Are there other issues that may be under the radar that we're not aware of that we should be? Things are happening or things that aren't happening to address the, this, this ongoing sort of movement of people. I mean, the reason I'm I'm also mentioning it is, although I'm not in the UK, I'm very aware of the government's policy of sending people off to Rwanda, and and all and also just the the general sort of the uproar that was caused by the statements that were made recently, and and also how Gary Lineker, the football commentator, quite rightfully stood up and uh, spoke his mind about the inhumanity and in, injustice of the government's proposed policies on dealing with what they call their the refugee crisis. So I'd love your perspective on just ever, aside from this devastating earthquake, have there been other things happening that have either given you some hope or things that you're concerned about? Yeah, I start with the concern and then I move to hope to have a good climax. <laughs> yeah. shall, shall I go and put the kettle on again? <laughs> Get myself another cup of tea. No, but could, could be here a while. But I mean, I I am no. I keep it short. I promise, Mark. Uh, it's funny, no, because I always ask people, "Can you bottom line it?" And then you know, I don't bottom line it quite myself. But I keep it short. I think what is really what puzzles me, and I have to really laugh because it almost feels like it's a uh, it's it's a satire. I, I, what puzzles me is that when I started this work with the Global Wellbeing Fund uh, seven years ago, fifty million people were displaced. 
right? By legal definition, it's obviously way more, but let's use it as, as an indication. Seven years into our work, uh, you know, into Josie's and my work, um, it's about 100 million people. So the number is doubling. So we do see you don't have to be aware of what is happening in the Congo or what is happening in uh, Thailand and their refugee protection systems to know that more people are fleeing because home is not safe for multiple reasons, from ranging from conflict to climate, which would make you think that our global community would come together and create appropriate and adequate and humane systems to actually effectively address this concern. But what we see is that this issue is being sweeped under the rug. We are going back in time. So the refugee protection, the protection for people who are displaced and forced to flee their homes, was 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 founded after the Holocaust at a very, very important making or breaking point for us as humanity, right? It shaped all of our consciousness and everything. Now, 60, 70 years later, we are going backwards and we are dismantling things that we have built at that time for very good reasons. At that time, both with people who were, you know, facing... Uh, concentration camps were turned back knowing that that's their death sentence. And we are doing the same now. So I think my concern is that we are not reckoning with the reality of a modern time and the fact that human mobility has always been part of humans, as you said, Mark, yourself. But right now it's a different scale and a different scope because people are in many places not safe. And conflicts are protracted. Ukraine is not going to be over at the end of this year. We know that Syria is 12 years into its pain and bleeding. Iran, where I fled, is still not safe. In fact, I had one of the most traumatic years last year and still till today, given what was going on in Iran and is still going on in Iran. So I think the concern is that we are not addressing a very important and fundamental issue that is affecting us at so many different levels at the degree that it's required. We are addressing the problem at the root of the problem with very short-term fixes and applying a very short-term lens. And we should know better. The hope that I have is the sophistication of the people that are running organizations and scaling operations and are working in this web of solidarity across borders and geographies is just out of this world. And I think that for me is a source of hope because that models a way of being and carrying yourself in this world that actually shows you, you can spend a life well. You may not be able to change larger geopolitical dynamics, but you can transform an entire community by contributing your skills and dedicating yourself to learning and growing. All these organizations that we see have learned and grown so much because they are humble, even though they carry so much, and they have done that with very little resourcing. So that gives me hope. Their visibility I'm and their, yeah, over to you, Josie. No, I was just going to say I'm always in awe of, of how Nagar commu communicates. Mm -hmm. And when, when you're speaking about, about these organizations and our partners and the ecosystems that we work in and the hope that they give us, you know, I, I just could never put it into words like you do. And I, I just couldn't agree more with you. It really, it, it really is the best of humanity. It really is. Just you mentioned around, I mean, it's 203 days, I believe now. As of today, that the protests have been happening. Again, it's another one that's fallen out. I only notice it because I have a lot of Iranian sort of Persian people in my network that I follow on Instagram and I, you know, see what's happening. But I, if you're not doing that, it's, it doesn't really make it into the mainstream sort of news networks anymore. What's your sort of sense from your network on the ground of, as to where things are and the, are, is there progress being made? Are there cracks in the foundations of the regime? I mean, some of the brutality that they're responsible for in just the murders of innocent people who have been protesting is, is shocking in itself. But behind the scenes, do you have some hope that there might be some form of regime change down the line? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question. And 
we actually were talking with our Syrian colleagues at the White Helmets about this in Montreal over a very delicious Syrian meal. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, it, it was, I could see that they see what is happening and I could see that they understand better than anybody given what they are just experiencing. And it was painful because we all know Iran's transformation into a democracy would elevate the entire region. It would change so much. So millions of people's lives depend on it that are not in the territory of Iran. And we all know that the geopolitical situation is just in a way that breaking through it and breaking breaking off the shackles of that authoritarian regime is going to take longer than we would like it to take. And so to your, to your question, I, I feel very ambiguous because on the one hand, we see transformation at a level that I would have never been able to imagine. Imagine my grandmother who was in her 70s suddenly sees women who are not wearing a headscarf, which is mandatory since the revolution in 79. Mm -hmm. That itself, seeing their hair in the wind and seeing them sing and dance on the streets is just, oh, I can't tell you how happy that makes me feel. At the same time, I see the systemic piece of it and it's just, it feels like it's suffocating and there is just no room to have meaningful change in the window that we would like it to happen. So I think Mm -hmm. the future is to be seen, but the psyche of the country has changed and transformed through the events over the last 200 plus days. And there is no going back. And for me to see conservative and conservative women who choose to wear a hijab and conservative men who who would not ever want to marry a woman who's not covered, stand up under the banners of women, life, freedom. I mean, that for me is radical. There is a systemic piece, but there is also a human piece. And I think that is just seeing men alongside women on these protests and seeing women with hijabs holding up the hands of the women who were burning their headscarves was just, I can't tell you how, what a gift it was for me to see that because it shows solidarity that overcomes political, religious, and all kinds of other affiliations. I think that has ripple effects. If it's going to lead to regime change, I don't know. Well, eventually one day, it's certain Inshallah. there will be change. Inshallah, yeah. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you about this. And it's, uh, I just hope that people that hear this take some action and give and do what they can and spread the word. And let's follow up again in a few months and see where things are. Thank you so much for having us. Continue the conversation. Thank you, thank you okay. so much, Mark.